Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 15. Acts, chapter 15. We are continuing our series of messages through the books of Acts, through the book of Acts. We've only got a, a couple of weeks left in the series, this and a couple of weeks more, and excited about finishing that up. And we're going to jump ahead today from chapter 6 to chapter 15. And just to kind of give you a update on what's kind of happening or been happening in the book of Acts. We've been reading that together as a congregation as well. We have been using the um, scripture notebooks. If you haven't been here, haven't been able to pick up a scripture notebook, we have just a few left on the welcome desk out front. You can go and look at that and um, take one of those if you would like to. And we've been reading through the book of Acts. We'll put the schedule up there. So we started on Acts 1 through 5 and 6 through 11. And if you are on pace right now, then you should be ready to start Acts chapter 22 tomorrow. Um, or if you're somebody that's sort of on pace, you're going to read 17 through 21 today and be ready for Acts 22 tomorrow. If you're not, then you can just see where we are, all right? And so reading through that, um, we had intended to do a, just to let you know, intended to do a question and answer time online for people, and I haven't gotten any questions. And so each week we talk about it. You can uh, pastor at fbcgillisville.com if you've got questions about anything you've read in the book of Acts. Um, you can send it there. So what I've determined to do is we're going to read the whole book of Acts and just collect any that you may have. And if we have questions, then we'll put them together and I'll do a question and answer kind of time um, at the end of the book of Acts. And so if you've got questions as you read, uh, you can uh, um, email those to me and I will go through those. I have gotten a few in the last week or so, just a couple, but not a lot of questions. And so if you've got some, send them my way or things that you notice things that are really sticking out to you as you read through the book of Acts, um, you can send it there. We're, the series we're calling Arrows in the Hands of God, it comes from a picture that we showed the very first week of the series of what passion looked like several years ago in the Georgia Dome, a huge conference of 18 to 22-year-olds, and there were 60 to 70,000 of them there. Somebody put that picture up online, and John Piper, a pastor in... Um, a pastor who had been a part of the passion movement looked at that and just commented online arrows in the hands of God. The idea that those of us that are sold out, that are living for the Lord are arrows that God uses to take his gospel to the nations. And there's no better example of that in scripture than the book of Acts. I want to take just a moment to remind us of where we've been. This is kind of like the uh, TV show that goes week after week and they show you the previously on section, right? Maybe if you're joining for the first time, they catch you up on this. But the book of Acts tells a rather amazing story of how a group of ordinary people, blue-collar workers, outcasts, tax collectors, women, started the largest religious movement in history. It is quite remarkable. Never had a larger assignment been given to a less qualified group of people. After Jesus had resurrected, he gathered this group of disciples together on the side of the mountain and said, your job is to spread the message that I have given to you over these last three and a half years to the every part of the earth that is known. And then he floated off to heaven. So how did they do it? Two things. One, Jesus gave them the Holy Spirit. 
who guided them and empowered them in building his church. You get a sense in Acts that they're just following wherever the Spirit leads. They're just trying to keep up. That the Spirit's going from here to there, and they're just keeping up with what's going. A great example of that from the reading a couple of weeks ago is Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. When he feels he's in the midst of this massive revival in a town, and he feels the Spirit say, you need to go out here. And he goes out to this desolate place for one man sitting in a carriage. And he gets there, and the guy is reading Scripture, but not any scroll. He's reading the scroll that talks about in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, that you will be wounded for our transgressions, pierced for our iniquities. And he says, what does this mean? You cannot have an evangelism opportunity set up on a tee better than that. And so you get this feeling that the Acts of the Apostles is really a misnomer when you think about what it is. It's the Acts of the Holy Spirit that the Apostles and the disciples are just trying to catch on. So that's the first thing. They had the Spirit of God. The second thing that got them through that is they had this unquestionable understanding that Jesus had risen from the dead. They firmly believed that buried body began to breathe. And that the living hope that we have is Jesus Christ. And so when they would encounter things that they didn't understand... They would say, I don't know, but Jesus is alive. What I know is that Jesus has been risen from the grave. He would say to people that would bring up questions about stuff, listen, the problem is not your lack of, I mean, the problem is not in your questions, it's in your lack of certainty about the resurrection of Jesus. When they faced obstacles they couldn't overcome, when Rome had put their leaders in prison, when their families were being fed to the lions or they had no money, they said, yeah, but Jesus rose from the grave and he is going to make this work. And here's the truth, that these people, even though they didn't have a clue about a strategy to reach to the ends of the earth, they knew that the risen Jesus had called them to it and whatever problems they encountered along the way, that he would be the one who would take care of them. So Acts is the story of how this early community, filled with the Spirit, confident of the resurrection, spread the gospel message to the ends of the earth. Along the way, Luke, the author, stops to tell us certain stories in the midst of it so that we can learn from them. And that brings us to Acts 15. Now sometimes problems in your life are small things that you don't understand how big the ramifications can be. Right? I mean, sometimes things happen in your life, you know, that's just a small issue. And then five weeks later, when you're still dealing with it in a major way, you're like, oh, that was a big issue I should have seen. For instance, we talked about Acts chapter 6 last week. That could have been seen by some as a small issue. A few widows aren't getting their daily allotment of bread. They think the same way everyone else is. We'll take care of that, but that's not a big deal. And yet we talked about last week that if they had not taken care of it in the way they did, it could have grown into a big problem. We experienced that at our house this week. We got home on Tuesday afternoon from work, and Ava went to get some water out of the refrigerator and said, Dad, there's a puddle here in front of the refrigerator. That's always what you want to hear. Amen. Maybe you know, not amen on that. Oh, no, whatever. And uh, there was just a little little leak in the back of the line from the... Uh, from the wall to the refrigerator. Just a little leak. Pulled it out, turned the water off, cleaned it up. Everything was great. And then Luke comes upstairs. Dad, why is there water dripping into my room everywhere? 
And so 14 Sir Pro fans later, we sit here this weekend with a little bitty spray problem on the back of the line that has now caused issues we'll be dealing with for, I don't know, ever, ever long that is, right? Like small issues can turn into big issues. But sometimes you know it's a big issue right away. Like it's not any doubt. Like this is something we have to address. Parents, you understand the difference, right? Sometimes there are things with your kids and you're like, you know what, this is something... It's not a huge issue. We need to address it, but it, it's not a big issue. And then there's sometimes that something comes in and you're like, no, that is something we have to address and address it now. Acts 15 is not the small little leak that might cause lots of problems. Acts 15 is the we got to address this now. In fact, if you think about the structure of the book of Acts, there are 20 Eight chapters in the book of Acts. Fifteen is not exactly halfway, but when you look at the wordage and all that is in there, it is almost exactly halfway in the book that Acts 15 happens. It is as if the book has been building towards Acts 15. And when you get to Acts 15, the question becomes, are the problems going to be solved in a way that it will continue the growth, the exponential growth of the church? Or will they deter into a way that will cause the church to fail? And I just want to be real honest with you today. We're going to read one of the most important passages of Scripture in all of the Bible because if they had decided something different than they decided in this moment. Now, I'm not in this is kind of a what if scenario. This is a speculative thing. And so I'm not I'm not questioning the sovereignty of God exactly happened what was supposed to happen. What I'm saying is if they had not decided this way, I'm not sure we're sitting here today where we are. And by that, I mean you and me. In this place with churches all around us. Because the question became who gets access to the gospel? Chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Some men came down from Judea. Now, just to let you know, this is a place where Paul and Barnabas are in this mission trip planting churches, they are working to plant churches. Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers. That's an important word there. A lot of times we'll translate that brothers and sisters. This was particularly brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. So a little background. A lot of Christians were Jews, the first ones. Jews had been raised on Old Testament law, and one of the most important Jewish laws was that every male had to be circumcised. It was a God-given sign to separate the people of God from the rest of the world. And so a lot of these new Jewish Christians were teaching, if you're going to be a child of God, Jesus was a Jew, you must first become Jewish to become Christian. And part of becoming Jewish meant you had to be circumcised. Now, I know that that's, it's a kind of an uncomfortable thing to talk about, but it's vastly important for this moment in this passage. And so when you think about how important this was to the people of God, it was instituted early on by God calling out Abraham, calling out his family and saying, this is what's happened. It's put into the law of Moses. But even Moses experienced how serious this was in one of the strangest stories in the Bible. Moses is leaving to go rescue the children of Israel. And then it says, and God came to kill him. Y'all, do you remember that? Like three of you. That's good. All right. And why had God come to kill him? Because he had not circumcised his son. 
If you're not serious about following me, he says, then how can you leave my people? And so there were people coming that we call them in uh, kind of history, Judaizers who would come behind Paul at almost every stop Paul would do. And you see this in the letters Paul writes. He would plant a church. He would talk about grace. He would talk about that the gospel is open to all, that God had made him the, the um, evangelist to the Gentiles. He would explain to them the glorious good news that Jesus had said, no matter your past, no matter your heritage, no matter your race, no matter your wealth, God has sent a way for you to be saved. Believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's all you have to do. Paul would preach that. People would accept Christ. Paul would build a church, leave town, and almost immediately after leaving town, some people would come behind him and go, wait, wait, Paul gave you part of the answer. Yes, those things are important, but if you're not circumcised, you can't be a child of God because all of God's children are circumcised. And if you really want to be a Christian... You have to be Jewish and then become a Christian. They were called Judaizers because they were people that were trying to evangelize people to Jewish faith before Christian faith. And so Paul at this moment is hearing this from people in Judea from where the church started. Verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. I love the way it says that. Right? How many of you husbands and wives have ever had no small dissension and debate? What do we call those? We call those arguments. We call them confrontations. After Paul and Barnabas had had a series of not small discussions and debates and dissension, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about the question. Can I tell you, we don't have from Scripture who appointed them, but can I tell you who was at the top of the list of appointing them? Paul and Barnabas. They wanted to get an answer to this question. Once and for all, what is required to be a believer? I want you to keep in mind, it was a ridiculously long trip for Paul and Barnabas. It might have been right in the middle of a very successful missionary journey and his writing. He's out establishing churches and writing books that we still study 2,000 years later. In the midst of this, Paul walks back to Jerusalem. I think it's important to remember that. He didn't catch the train or the plane or have a couple of days journey. This was a weeks long journey. Because he knows that this issue has to be confronted and decided. And whatever is being discussed is so important that he's willing to come all the way back to discuss it. Verse 6 tells us that the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate... Again, lots of no small dissension and debate. Lots of debate. Peter stood up and said to them. Now, one of the things I love about Acts 15 is you have all of the major characters of the early church together. Apostles, Paul, Barnabas, Peter, and later we'll find out James, the brother of Jesus, are all here. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of gospel and believe. Now, in case you haven't been reading the book of Acts with us, he's referring here to Acts chapter 10. Right after Paul comes to faith in Christ, Peter is summoned to the house of a man named Cornelius 
where God tells him to eat whatever Cornelius says. And he says, I can't do that. It's unclean. And God says, what I have determined to be clean, do not call unclean. And Peter's like, uh, no. And he's like, yes. And Peter's like, no. And God says, yes. I don't know how many times God would have said yes to Peter's no, but it was enough. And Peter got the idea. And Cornelius, a Gentile, and his whole family were saved. And so Peter says, Paul's not the first to have Gentiles come to faith. Verse 8. God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. That's an important phrase. He said the Gentiles got the Holy Spirit without being circumcised, without anything different, without becoming Jewish first, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them. No distinction between us and them. Cleansing their hearts by faith. And then Peter says, now then, why are you testing God? By putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear. There were 613 Jewish laws. And lots of additions that people added onto them to say that you were required to do this in order to follow that. Circumcision was just one. 612 others, and Peter's like, I don't know about you guys, but I never felt like I was keeping them all anyways, and I was born a Jew, and first of all, if I could barely keep them straight, how was I allowed to walk on the Sabbath again? Where were I allowed to eat llama meat? How about turkey bacon? Is that okay? Like, what about my polyester? Now, obviously those are modern things, but you get the idea. He says, no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't keep it. I never felt like I was... Measuring up. You can almost imagine him looking around the room and going, John, what about you? Thaddeus, Bartholomew, James. Any of you think you were doing what the law said perfectly? He says, if we couldn't keep the laws and we were born into it, why would we put that burden on the Gentiles? Verse 11, on the contrary, We believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. He says none of that could save us. The finished work of Christ on the cross and the resurrection saved us. It's not what we did, but it was faith in what he did alone. Verse 12. The whole assembly became silent and listened As Barnabas and Paul describe all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they stopped speaking, James responded. That's James, the brother of Jesus, who would write the epistle of James, who would become the pastor of the Jerusalem church, but did not believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. James stands up and he says to them, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people from his name. And then he quotes, he quotes a passage of scripture there about what the Lord is doing. And we move down to verse 19. And it says, one of the most important verses in all of scripture. Therefore, in my judgment, We should not cause difficulty for those among the Gentiles who turn to God. 
Think about that phrase for just a moment. We should not make it difficult for people that want to turn to God. Any barrier that we can eliminate, we need to eliminate. Even things that we really like that might be a barrier to people to come to the gospel, we need to eliminate. Even things that we have become very comfortable with that might be a barrier for people coming to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to eliminate. I think about it in my preaching. I don't want to make it people. I don't like it. Excuse me. I don't want to make it hard or difficult for people unfamiliar with Christianity to turn to God because I use a bunch of terms that they don't understand or that I, that I, that I just talk about insider language. Nor do I think that we need to make it act like that we are the people that have it all figured out. And then we know everything because that makes it harder for people that don't to put their faith in a Christ that can save them. Well, sometimes we project this perfected, sanitized life. And yet we know that our lives are not sanitized and perfect. I don't want to make it hard for guests that come into our church to have heard that maybe God is in the midst of doing something, but then they get here and things are barriers to them being able to hear the gospel. So I don't speak or try not to speak mockingly or condescendingly about people on the outside who are not yet believers in Jesus Christ. I prefer to think of them as people who are not yet believers in Jesus Christ. I don't want to speak down to people that have different political beliefs than me because I understand that more important than their political belief system is their understanding of who Jesus Christ is. I don't want to have barriers up based on socioeconomic reasons where people think you have to dress in a certain way or have a certain amount or drive a certain car to be able to be a part of this church or to follow Jesus Christ. I don't want to have the barrier of racial inequity and things happening all around us where we project this image that people of different races are not welcome in this place. And that is a barrier to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't want to make it difficult for people that are struggling with sin and realize that the sin in their lives is causing them issues and they're looking for a solution. I don't want to speak to them in a way that makes them run from the solution in their lives. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God, was James's declaration. And we should not make it difficult for those who are not yet followers of Jesus Christ to hear the gospel message. Now, he does give a stipulation in verse 20. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Then we're going to talk about some lessons we learn out of the midst of that. He says, we should not make it difficult. In verse 20, he says, but... Instead, we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from anything that eating anything that has been strangled and from blood. There you go. Now, that's a weird combination. Right. Kind of read that and you go, what? Like. Sexual immorality is out and strangling animals and eating them is out. Here's what we have to understand is the sexual environment around the church in the first century was not that different from the sexual environment around the churches that we live in. And one of the surefire ways 
that he wanted people to understand that we were followers of Jesus Christ is that we believe that sexuality is something that is sacred to the Lord, created by him to be enjoyed within the confines of marriage. Now, here's the difference, okay? So you say, what about the other Ten Commandments? Well, most of the other Ten Commandments, everybody agreed on is bad. Like, there's not a lot of debate about murder out there, right? Is this really bad? Stealing, not a lot of debate. And so it wasn't like the broader culture was saying, yeah, we love murder, but those Christians really don't. But sexual immorality was rampant and there were no limits on it. And the moral commandments of the Old Testament, of the Jewish commandments, so they don't have to become Jews, but they need to understand that the moral commitments of our Lord and Savior are the same as the moral commitments written in the book that Moses told us about the law that was there in Leviticus. Now, the eating meat to idols and strangled from animals, that's a little something different because that was like, the worst thing you could do in a Jewish environment. And so this was more of a fellowship problem than a moral problem. And one of the things it teaches us is that we need to be aware of what's happening around us and the people that are gathered around us and that we don't do anything intentionally to offend the people who are brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, if you take this to be three or four little rules that he says, tell them not to do this and not to do that. Think about this for a minute. They went from 613 down to three or four. That's a major improvement. Amen. And the big one was off the table. Scripture then teaches us that what happens is you can read the rest of the story if you want to, but we'll get down just kind of towards the end. They pick a group of people to go and take it. Silas, leading men among brothers. Paul and Barnabas are a part of it. They write this letter out. It tells them it seemed good to the Holy Spirit to let you not a greater burden on thee than these requirements. You abstain from food sacrifice to idols and from blood and what has been strangled and immorality. If you yourselves keep from these, you will do well. Farewell. Verse 30. So when they were sent off and went down to Antioch and after gathering assembly, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. All right, so that was a long kind of story to get to a couple of points that I want to tell you. When we think about being arrows in the hands of God, when we think about extending the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those around us, there are some lessons for us in this passage that are important. And wings we need to avoid as a church and as a person and as a group of people. And the first one is this, we need to avoid the drift of a passion for outsiders and move to focusing on insiders. We need to avoid the drift that happens in churches after they're established. When brand new churches are started, it's all about outreach. It's all about going out. It's all about new people. It's all about bringing people in. It's all about salvation. It's all about baptism. It's all about can we find people that need to be saved. And what happens is over time, churches go through this thing where they begin as they grow to grow inwardly, begin to focus inwardly. And then if they want to come, that's fine. But we're going to make sure all is good inside. 
Usually churches go through cycles of this where they will see kind of a rise in attendance and new people. And then there'll be a point where they're like, OK, OK, now we got to make sure everything's settled and together and everything's good inside. Let's all make sure everything's good inside. And they lose their focus on the outside. And they'll realize that at some point, at some critical point, they'll think we got to focus on outside and they'll begin to look on that. But the drift that almost always happens is from external to internal. A few weeks ago, I got a text message. That was a reminder to me about this. Linda Scott sent Susan and I a text message with a picture on it. Josh, did he get in or is it in there? Okay, here, this picture was there. Now, I don't know if you can tell what's there, but most of you know, many of you know that just a couple of years ago, a little over a couple of years ago, we tragically lost Lisa Brooks. And a few weeks ago, Linda was going through her purse. And these two things were in her purse. Now, here's why that's significant, okay? First of all, this little thing here. Anybody remember this? Raise your hand if you remember this. Like three of us, right? Because that may have been all that was here, all right? This is from 2008. 2008. I went to a an upward conference. We were doing upward basketball at that time. I went with an upward conference with uh, David Bale in our room together and also with Judy and Debbie. And we went to this upward conference. And while they were there, they talked about that most churches have become mirror gazers instead of window watchers. And this little piece here is on one side a mirror and on the other side is a picture of a window and it was to be a reminder to us as a church we I ordered them all and we gave them out to the church that this was a reminder that we are to remain window watchers looking outwardly more than we are mirror gazers lisa kept that in her purse until she went home to be with the lord as a reminder to her the the thing that's on the left you can see her name is actually on there with her number. And, um, this is something that she came to my office and said, I want these printed for our church. And I'm going to put my name on it, and I'm going to give them to people every day that I talk to to tell them about our church. And Linda sent me the picture. And just for a moment, self-analyzation. Man, I've become too much of a mirror gazer instead of a window watcher. Where's my passion for those outside? We ought not to make it hard for those who are not yet followers of Jesus to turn to God. So we need to analyze everything we have. I'm constantly praying about and thinking through What is it that is set in stone part of what we do as our faithfulness to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And what is exterior stuff that we like or have grown accustomed to that we think has to be? And are those things barriers to people coming to know Jesus Christ? That means everything we do. Our building, our traditions, our services, our ministries. The way we do discipleship and worship and outreach. Are there barriers in the midst of that that prevent people from coming to 
Christ. The second drift we have to avoid is not only that external look to internal. The second one we have to avoid is the drift from grace to law. Here's what's interesting. I believe that most of those that were calling for circumcision, now maybe some of the Judaizers weren't, but I firmly believe that many of the ones who were calling for circumcision were saved. They believe they were saved by putting their faith in Christ. But after they started to drift back towards a rules-based relationship to God, that's what always happens. We constantly drift from grace back to law. Uh, Martin Luther said that we are hardwired to go back to rules. Now, our list may be different than the Judaizers. It may not be the 600 plus rules of Judaism, but there's a list of things that we basically think if you do this, then you can't be a follower of Jesus. Or if you don't do that, you can't be involved in a ministry or you can't be involved in doing what God has called you to do. Those lists change over time, but there's always a list of external things that proves you're internal. Now, I'm not talking about fruit of the spirit. I'm talking about external rules that we put on. And we drift from Christ only saves only through the grace of Jesus Christ to, but you can earn part of it this way. The gospel is that you are purified the moment you put faith in Christ. Not faith in what you're able to do, not faith in what you hope to do, but the moment you put your faith in Christ, that is when you are saved. His last words on the cross were not, go fix yourself. They were, it has been finished. That it means at any moment, you can be fully right with God, no matter how lost you are, if you will but trust in the grace and the mercy that Jesus Christ gives you. And we as Christians often say, yeah, 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 but... There is no yeah, 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 but when it comes to grace. And churches often drift from this grace that Christ saved us. It is through Christ, for Christ, because of Christ, nothing of ourselves to, but I can help him out this way. Or a lot of people think, oh, he saved me, but my spiritual growth is all about what I do. So we need to avoid the drift from grace to law. And then finally, we need to related to this we need to avoid the drift from a focus on an internal transformation to one to external conformity we're not asking people to look like and act like us we're asking people to accept jesus christ and be internally transformed forever which means that we will disagree about some things Because we live in a broken world and God made us different. Aren't you glad for the diversity that God made us with? Wouldn't it be boring to have six billion of you? It would be. I'll tell you. I don't have none. It would be boring to have six billion of you. All right? All right? I've told you this quote many times. Rick Warren has said that if two people agree on everything, one of them is unnecessary. Right? Aren't you glad, those of you that have spouses, that your spouse is different than you? Right? It challenges you in ways, strengthens you in ways, has places where they encourage you indifferently than you do. Aren't you glad your children are different? Those of you who have multiple children, aren't you glad they're different? They're not all the same. Did you feel like you're living the groundhog day of the exact same thing as you're raising them? 
I won't ask you which one you like better, but aren't you glad they're different? Right? God created us with great diversity. When you just look at this planet, the diversity of thought and looks and actions and passions are greatly varied. And yet Jesus Christ loves every single one of us the same. And our job is not to say we need you to come and look like us. There's a missionary many, many years ago and his name was Donald McGavern and he went over to India and was looking at the mission work in India. And what he realized was happening is that the mission work, what American missionaries were doing is they would go in and they would set up an American hospital and an American school and an American church. And then they would go witness to people and ask them that if they became safe, come join our community. And what they realized is they were converting more and more people to Americanism than to Christianity. One of my favorite stories about our work in Brazil happened early on, before I was ever a part. I was just probably middle school at the time, um, maybe not even that old. But Gary Taylor, uh, who is one of the guys that leads our construction team, went over and they were getting ready to build a church in Brazil, a chapel in Brazil. And they went with a design and they built a design that looked like a little chapel in the woods. You know, like an old country song, Chapel in the Woods. And the people in Brazil hated it because that's not what it should look like. Because we're not trying to make them like us. We are trying to see Jesus transform their lives. So we don't expect them to adopt our Christian appearance and our vocabulary, our way of living, our politics. We're asking them to be changed by Jesus. And those three shifts can destroy the forward movement of the church. The Passion for outsiders turns into pacifying insiders. The passion for grace turns into a passion for law. The passion for a focus on eternal transformation turns into one of external complicity. And Acts 15 is a moment of incredible and subtle danger. Could have ended the rapid expanse of the Christian movement. And many churches have this moment in their own church, and they never realize it. Where they go from a church that is outwardly focused and doing what they can to reach people with the gospel, to be arrows in the hands of God, to suddenly they are protecting what they have and hunkering down to make sure nothing's taken away from them. And the moment you begin to do that is the moment that God begins to move in ways outside of your church. I want to be a church that does not make it hard for those that are not yet believers to come to Christ. And I want to be a church that's willing to do whatever it takes to see that happen. And my prayer is, you do too. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we are thankful for the reality of this decision in Acts 15 that greatly impacted the history of the world, impacted us as people, and that we're gathered here today with an understanding that grace saves, Jesus saves. And no matter how hard we try to put other labels or other things on it, we understand that Jesus alone saves. I pray, Lord, today, if there's someone here that has never accepted you as their Savior, 
Lord, I pray that they would understand. They don't have to clean themselves up. They don't have to look like us. They don't have to be like us. They don't have any conformity that has to happen. They simply have to accept your grace and your mercy. Pray, Lord, that in this moment, if they're here, that you would help them to understand their need for you. You would give them the wisdom and the courage to believe. Father, I pray that for those of us that are part of this church, that we're saved, Lord, that we would look at the things in our lives, in our small groups, our Sunday school classes, in our church, and ask what are barriers to people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And are we more concerned about keeping that than we are about people's salvation? Lord, I pray that you would bring specific things to mind. First, to evaluate and ask the question and look at. And that we would lay them down before you and say, Lord, if these are barriers, take them down. Lord, we need you as a church. We need you as individuals because we can do nothing without you. I pray that we would understand that and live that every day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.